It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I'm speaking with Victoria. And on Victoria's website, there is a lovely quote, which is, there is no grief like the grief that does not speak from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And that actually reminds me of something Victoria and I were talking about right before we started recording, which was that at a party, it's unlikely that you will talk about grief. This is something (laughs) Victoria said that if the two of us were meeting at a party, she suspects it's unlikely we would talk about grief. And Victoria, I'm curious why you say that. And do you truly never find yourself talking about grief, even though that's your work? Does that not come up in a, a party setting? And why not is my starting question. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with where I live, which is of Germans from Russia, where the heritage and the background is very much a stoic. People that settled here were hardcore people that had to survive a really harsh winters. And it was, quit your bitching, get on with it. It is what it is. Just that pull yourself up from your bootstraps type of mentality. Like, and we don't talk about our feelings. Like, what are those? (laughs) We don't talk about our feelings. And so I think that's, and because of what I know about grief in what we resort to what we know. And so as parents, we resort to what we know, and especially when it comes to grief. And so if I was never taught how to grieve or what that process looks like in a healthy way, I'm going to probably pass on the lessons I learned from my parents. And that's why the, the cycle of the misinformation and how we as a society today have gotten away from talking about death and dying and even the dying process. And we leave end of life care to other people and we leave funeral arrangements. I mean, yes, you have to be involved, but we give someone else that job to handle it. We really don't want any part of that. Uh, It's no one wants to have to make all those decisions right at the end of life. I'm not sure how I got to that point, but it just comes back to, yeah, it's, they call this area the Iron Curtain. And it is like this triangular area that where Germans from Russia came. And we just, you don't talk about your feelings. You stuff them down, you drink (laughs) and eat comfort food. So that's, that's what a lot of people I think, grew up with. That's so fascinating. And it's got my wheels turning because I wonder how I became someone who is so open because my parents seem somewhere in between. I also have German heritage. And when I think about my grandfathers, for example, one of my grandfathers was Ukrainian. 
the other German, Irish, kind of a a mix from what I remember. And (laughs) they both kind of had that traditional demeanor about them. Um, especially my Ukrainian grandfather, he felt less talking about his feelings. He, I don't even remember him feeling very warm as a grandfather. My other grandfather with the German side felt more warm. But even so, I don't recall feelings being a big thing with him unless we were talking about something related to his religion, Christianity, and maybe a God-related feeling type of discussion there. And he was very loving. And my parents are both very loving, but they too didn't like talk about it in the way that I am. Like the reason I started off the conversation this way with you, Victoria, is because I would be someone who would talk about grief at a party. (laughs) That would interest me because I love exploring maybe like the taboo or the deeper things. I detest small talk. I really also don't like feeling restricted from my feelings. I feel like the more I am encouraged to button up and not share, the more I want to. It's like I'm bursting at the seams. And if someone like you were to start a conversation about grief, I would be just enthralled. You know, I would want to know every detail, even if you were a complete stranger. And I don't really know how I became that way. But that's somehow became part of my life. I did grow up in Massachusetts in a town that felt very liberal and anything kind of went and you were allowed to explore things. So maybe it is based on the area that you're in and not so much about the heritage and your parents. What do you think about that? Given that you grew up in North Dakota, do you feel like everyone is like that? Or are there people that do you feel more in touch about your feelings? Do you feel kind of like on the outskirts with the work that you do? That's a great question because I've actually been really reflecting more on that in the last few years specifically because since I've been doing this work. But before I was doing this work, I really felt alone in a lot of ways. And I think that's why we tend to grieve alone, especially if our environment isn't one of openness in conversation, right? And so I think it does take someone to initiate that. But what I'm finding is that, yes, there are people that are curious and more so about the energy work that I do, not necessarily the grief, because people don't really want to talk about their grief in that environment, (laughs) probably, unless they maybe had a few, right? But It's not that I don't think there aren't people who don't want to talk about it. I just don't think that. Here's the thing. So like as a kid, I would be I would be the kid that would order like the book on palm reading. And like I I was like you, like I felt like an odd duck. Like I felt like I was born in the wrong place or at the wrong time. Because I was into the mystical. I was into the strange stuff. And I felt misunderstood most of my childhood. And, and because of my grief experience, my personal grief experience, I did have a difficult time connecting with people because no one I knew had ever lost a parent when they were a child. And 
I had also experienced sexual abuse and after my dad had passed away when I was a kid. And so I had a lot of grief and a lot of trauma. And so I kept people, I think, too, at a distance because talking about what I was feeling wasn't safe. I didn't feel safe to do so. And so I, I internalized much of my, my grief and my trauma. There are some kids that will, who are deemed problem children because they are outwardly expressing through anger, through behavior, through outbursts, through maybe they start drinking at a young age, maybe they start using drugs, maybe they're getting into fights at school. They're considered problem children, but people don't really look at, well, what is their situation? What has their, been their, they're just learning how to cope. They don't know how to cope. That's how they're coping with what they are feeling. And then there's like kids who are like me who then developed self-worth issues and were people pleasers and had to be the strong one emotionally because it wasn't safe for me to fall apart. Right. And so, and then you kind of feel like you want to be the best that you can be in whatever you're doing. So you might feel have tendency to be, have these perfectionist tendencies. And so there's these two camps of grievers for kids. And, and I was definitely the wallflower that didn't want to rock any boats, that didn't feel worthy. And we carry that with us into adulthood. And so I think there's a lot of, it is my belief, that adulthood is childhood reenactments. And I think we're just a lot of adults when it comes to grief that are wearing diapers. <laughs> we just don't know. Because as children, like when we come out of the womb, we know how to express ourselves, right? We know how to express when we're crying, when we're hungry, when we're tired, when we're in pain, when we're not feel safe, right? We probably cry as a baby. But as you get older, by the age three, you've learned 75% of what you would resort, like your, from your environment on how you'll cope, right? With certain situations by three years old. So now by 15, we've learned the remainder of how we'll actually address big problems in our lives, even though our frontal lobes are developed till we're 25. So 15 to 25, that is a monumental time, just not only being a teenager, but if you don't have support, you don't have that education on or communication with, about how to address your feelings or emotions. That's where we see a lot of the issues we do in society today with young adults and yeah, the divorce rate, the addiction rate, suicide rate, like all of it, it's all grief. And we take ourselves everywhere we go and you can't outrun it. I know there was a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> I feel mesmerized by what you're sharing because it breaks my heart a bit. There are times where I wish I could even just go back and like, you know, in the movies, I could go back and actually see my life and see what happened when I was three years old. You know, what are the things that occurred that I don't remember? And going back to my parents, it's sometimes I'll ask them questions to try to better understand what's happening, but I don't think they were like super in touch. Like they were just kind of looking maybe at raising me from a more practical level, not this, as you were saying, like 
you and I are similar in like the spiritual mystical side of it, which has appealed to me over time. In fact, just a little side note, a few years ago, I asked my dad what my birth time was. And he looked it up and he told me, and he was like, why do you ask? And I was like, oh, I just wanted to look up my numerological chart. Like what are my signs and you know all, the, all those things? I was just curious. And my dad was like, laughing at me and and also kind of in a mocking way, like, you really believe in that stuff? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about it. And my dad is a very open person. But for things like that, he thinks it's really weird. And he, he thinks it's silly and impractical, right? So how could I trust him to share details about me when I was three that would actually help me better understand myself? It'd probably just be like, oh, you're a normal three-year-old, right? <laughs> I do think that it's important and I wish that more parents were aware of the developments and documented it in these ways that give us these clues because to your point with adulthood being so deeply connected to our childhoods, I think it's really important. But many of us kind of brush through those stages of our life to almost get it over with or we're just focused on having fun or we're setting ourselves up for success later in life. But for me, success is very tied to who I am as a person and how I got that way. So if I don't understand why I am who I am, how can I be successful, right? And then to your point, my heart breaks for all the people that I was growing up with that were probably going through different types of trauma. Some of them maybe the more classic experiences, but I didn't even know they were happening because to your point, most kids either act out and we see them as trouble and how awful for them to grow up feeling like the bad kid. I can't imagine. I was similar to you, Victoria, where I wanted to be the good kid. I was either really quiet or I was the teacher's pet. Or I was trying to be friends with everybody. Like I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to feel good, like a good person. So all those people pleasing things, that was me. And so of course, I'm going to view a kid that acts out as the bad kid. But I had no knowledge at that time why they might be acting that way. And it's so sad from a societal level that we have put people in these boxes as if there's something inherently wrong with them versus actually examining how they got to that point. What came to my mind is just thinking about like our medical, and I didn't expect to go here, but like our medical system, like even a PhD, right? You go see your doctor. They never ask you what happened to you. And if we started to bring, here's the deal, like everything is connected. And our emotions have energy, our thoughts have energy. Where your focus goes, your energy flows. Wherever your focus is, right? So if you're downward spiraling and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling down, you had a traumatic loss, you had trauma or whatever the case was, and you are just in this emotional stuckness, and then you start having physical manifestations of that, When I was 16, I was told I had IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Okay, I was emotionally constipated. I didn't have an outlet to express. I actually, I started to journal 
And then my mom read my journal. I'm like, well, I guess I can't journal. So I was emotionally constipated. I slept a lot as a kid. And so as adults, that doesn't change. We have these physical manifestations. We either implode or we explode. And so it could mean fibromyalgia. It could mean um, rosacea. It could mean hair loss. It could mean just these physical pain that has no explanation. Oftentimes it is things that have no explanation. They don't know what's causing it. Like I said, you go to the doctor, they don't ask what happened to you. That's not in the equation. Your emotional well-being is not in the equation of your physical well-being and that they're so one and the same. They're so connected to each other. And so if we don't implode, well, then we're exploding. We're like that child that is acting out, that's getting into fights, that's pushing people away before they get too close, right? We're probably struggling in our relationships. These patterns repeat in our lives over and over and over. We just don't connect the dots that it's grief. That is so profound and fascinating. I That's one of, similar to you, what you're saying here is, I also feel sad that we're not taught a lot of these things, but how could we be taught them <laughs> if our parents don't know it or our parents aren't interested in it? If our medical system, which is based on generally older generations, so if their generation wasn't encouraged or allowed or interested in these things, like it's just not going to show up. I'm also deeply fascinated by a lot of the gender elements of our medical system, the racial elements. I mean, there's so many factors of what we are taught about our bodies that is based on outdated information and limited information about the population, where a lot of women are left out of these studies, people that aren't white are left out, people that are in growing up in different economic situations, different parts of the country. I mean, like there's so many variables and a lot of people I feel like are walking around completely unaware of what's going on with their body or their minds. And we have a major mental health issue in this country, at least if not the world, but I feel like in the U.S. it's it's so rampant. But yet who's talking about these things that you're bringing up, which sound so obvious to me now. And I'm so grateful for people like you that are doing this work because we need more awareness around it. There is even medically, I was just catching something I saw, not on the news, it was some special or a program or something. They were talking about like basically the brain and how this isolation through COVID is and and like headaches, like migraines it's really all of this stuff is like, we're actually changing our brains. It's almost like it's, there's atrophy of the brain. Like we're literally changing our brains by not connecting with people. Like all of this stuff on TV and the news, like we're watching this stuff, what we're putting in our bodies, the stress that we're under, like all of these things. I really don't think we will understand the consequences and the amplifications of what COVID-19 has caused us, maybe, at, I don't think, at least for another five, six, seven years. And what boggles my mind is that this I did see on the news. And I was like, this is on the news now? Like, what the world? Where were you like 30 years ago? But now they're talking about children in grief. 
and how they're losing their parents and they're losing loved ones. And, and I'm thinking, and due to COVID-19, and I'm thinking, children were always losing their parents. They were always losing loved ones. They were always in poverty. They were always in broken homes. Like these, they were always living with a parent that maybe had an addiction. Like all of these circumstances didn't just come about because of COVID. And it's not all because of COVID. Like this stuff existed long before. And so for me, I one thing I always say is grief has been our pandemic long before COVID-19 was. And it will continue to be until we come to the understanding that we are our own worst enemies. That until we learn new knowledge and until we apply that knowledge and integrate it into our lives, the cycle will repeat. That is also so well articulated and really interesting. I don't think I've heard it phrased that way. And you're right, like grief has been talked about in some, I don't know if new is quite the right term, but from a cultural perspective, it feels new because grief in general seems to be something, as you started off talking about, that we kind of put under the rug. And we see everything going on in the Ukraine right now. And I almost feel like that's being looked at a bit differently because, as you mentioned, we have new media outlets. We have different connections. We're able to see information about what's happening in real time in a different way. But what I don't know is, are we more sensitive and aware of grief or are we becoming more numb to grief because it's been so in our face for the past two plus years? What have you observed about that? Do you, are people learning to cope with grief better or are they getting kind of worse because there's so much of it, they don't feel like they can handle it? I think because of COVID, it's all in our face at once. And then all of these other issues due to COVID that keep inflicting, it's like more cuts, right? It's just like every, like inflation, gas prices, food prices, interrelationships that are, you're confined in one space now. You're not getting out as much. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you had to move because you lost your job. All of these changes that happen as a result of, it's all ripples, the ripples of this. It's not just one loss. And are we desensitized to grief? I don't know. I think we're almost, we, we try to turn a blind eye to it, I think, just as we've gotten away from the dying process. We, as hands off as we possibly can be, I don't know the exact years or time frame, but I know like in the, you look at older pictures, black and whites, 1800s, maybe even early 1900s, families would keep their loved ones with them and take pictures with their dead loved ones as if they were living. Mothers would have their babies, their deceased babies, and they would take a family portrait with the deceased baby. And I just talked to someone today for my podcast, Grieving Voices, and she's like, I was three years old when my older sister died. She was seven. I wasn't at the funeral. My mom just kept her and her sister with someone else, and they weren't allowed. They were not at the funeral. She didn't take them to the funeral. 
as an eight-year-old child, that was I was at my dad's funeral. But because there was no communication about what happens or what what death means or or like what now, I made up my own stories, right? So I saw him go into the ground and I thought, well, that's what happens when you die. You just, you go into the ground and that's it. This is the thing where beliefs can can either be a hindrance or they can be a positive thing, but because we do pass on our beliefs too, right? But my mom in her own devastation of her grief, there was no talking about what now, what we're going to do now, but we we didn't go to church anymore. And so I didn't feel like there was this continuation of the relationship with my dad. Like I didn't feel like I could talk to him. I didn't feel like he was still present in any way, shape, or form. And so that really shaped my beliefs moving forward and really got me away from any belief whatsoever. I actually, in my heart, rejected God. I was very angry. I was an angry child, and I became an angry adult. But that anger was internalized, right? And I was very self-critical of myself and shameful and guilt and all of those things. And then I used alcohol to soothe. And so, yeah, to your point, I think that we've just, when we don't know what to do or what to say, we either just do nothing or we resort to what we know. And that really will be dependent on what your beliefs are. But they show... I always find it curious how they'll show like the abuse of animals and pets, like the abuse that actually show the animals like in their abused environment. Imagine if they showed children, but they don't, right? Um, First of all, it's probably privacy. I get that, you know, reasons and stuff, but you can talk about the stuff all day long, the really hard stuff. You can just talk about it. But until you've experienced it or until you know someone who's experienced it or unless you're working in that area, it's almost as if it doesn't exist, right? Yeah, it seems like so many people believe the best way to handle trauma is to pretend it didn't happen to you or to someone else. It's like, Okay, we're just going to move on. This is how we cope. This I is... can't imagine that happening to myself, but I can't imagine that happening. But I don't want to imagine it happening to me, so <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's why you were saying like at a party people don't talk about grief and you know, it's very awkward. This has become a newer passion of mine. I've had a few guests on the show to talk about just discussing things like how do you talk to somebody who's gone through grief? This is a recent topic on the show. And I'm very interested in that because I I don't want to sweep things under the rug because everything I've learned about well-being, to your point, says that we we should address it, but we should also check in with people and see, do they really want to pretend it's not happening? Or do they want to have small talk about their loss or do they want somebody to show that they deeply care and that they're there there's there's someone there for them because I think you had also mentioned earlier Victoria that it can feel so lonely and you can feel so misunderstood I think that's one of the 
hardest things for people to go through is that they're alone and they're misunderstood, that nobody's going to understand what I'm going through. So I'm going to either act out or get really quiet to hide it so that I could be further disconnected from people because I'm afraid if I connect with them, they're not going to understand me and that's going to be more painful. Here's the thing. Or when you do, and then that person says something hurtful or harmful unintentionally, and then it's like, well, I learned my lesson now. Oh, shut down, put the armor up. And so that's why with my podcast, it's through story, you're also learning how to communicate with people. Like I I will ask questions like, what are some helpful tips that people shared with you? What are some things that what are some things that you heard that were unhelpful or hurtful? And so it's very much an education podcast as well. I want people to understand that grief just isn't about death. No one has to die for you to be a griever. You could have lost a dream. You could have had a college scholarship and then you got injured or something and you had to kiss that goodbye, right? There's so many ways in which we grieve that people, you know, it's like, well, that happened. I swept it under the rug. I'm good to go. I dealt with that. I don't have to bring that up. Okay, well, it's going to come up again eventually in your life. I guarantee it. Like, I'll put money down on it. (laughs) You know, eventually those same feelings will come up in a different way, shape or form as grief. Just the repetitive patterns repeat. I mean, the patterns repeat. That's, you know, that's what happens. You might have the same, especially like with, because this is the thing, like we are in relationship. We are in relationship with our coworkers, our parents, our siblings, our friends, our boss, our, the cashier down the street, the postmaster, all these people we see on a daily basis, right? And you ask anyone, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. And it stops there, right? Because people, that's what they'll say. But I'll give you a clue is when people say I'm fine, that's really feelings inside not expressed. Because if they can't say, I'm great, or I'm, you can tell when someone's like bullshitting you, you can tell a genuine, like, I'm really good. Or what about this? Let's say you do ask, but you're not in a time or space to really hear the answer. People can sense that too. Like people can sense if it's just pleasantries, or if you genuinely do have the time and space to hear the answer. And so sometimes this is where grievers can kind of become cynical and just feel like, well, you're just another person that's just digging and wanting information or wanting to know what happened or how I'm doing or if I'm falling apart or if I'm keeping it all together. So it's like this. It's like this. That's why grief is like this. It's like you just ride the wave. It's the ups and the downs. It's you feel crazy in the midst of that. And then you have people that just don't know what to say or what to do. Because of that, they just don't say anything. And so then you feel like that indifference is, means they don't care. And so that's why it's so difficult to maintain relationships when you're in grief, because you're all bringing your own stuff. Even the person asking the question is projecting their own stuff. Like, I want to ask you how you're doing, but I'm afraid what it's going to bring up for me you know? So let's just keep it to small talk (laughs) because I'm more comfortable with that, right? So many people are just afraid to go deep. 
Yeah. And I'm like you, like I would, let's skip the small talk. Let's <laughs> tell me your deepest, your dreams. Tell me what makes you tick. Tell me where's one place you would love to visit or what keeps you up at night? Absolutely. And there's this memory that's come up for me a number of times when I've reflect on grief. And it's interesting how poignant things can be that like, if you don't think about it that often, um, they seem insignificant. But for me, I have this vivid memory of being in the high school cafeteria with one of my classmates whose brother died very tragically. And he died, I think, like right before summer break. And I didn't know her brother well, but I remember feeling the sadness of the situation. You know, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts in a very small school system. So anything tragic that happened, especially in the school that I was in, like you would feel it. And there were only a few instances of that. I think previous to her brother, one kid that was like a year or two older than me died also very tragically from like a brain aneurysm or something. And I remember like being curious about it, but no one would really talk about it, young and trying to figure out what this means. And I didn't realize kids my age could die, you know, like all of that processing. But this girl in the cafeteria, it was after summer break. And I went up to her and said, how was your summer? And she looked at me and she was like with a few friends. And I think they all kind of looked at me as she responded. And she just said, well, you know, wasn't that great or something like that. Like, and it hit me in this moment. I felt so embarrassed because I don't know if I either had forgotten that her brother had passed away just a few months before or like I was trying to connect with her by asking her like how she was doing. And she responded in a way like, well, obviously not good because my brother died, you know? And I remember just feeling awful, like, oh, I said the wrong thing. And I also have this memory of like it probably being so evident on my face of like, I don't know what else to say. And I think I just walked away or something and just like sat with that embarrassment or even shame. And that felt like such a deep memory that it's come up to me all these years later and reminded me of that, how uncomfortable it is when you do feel like you've said the wrong thing, even when you're trying so hard to connect with somebody. And maybe I carried that through with me of like, you better not say the wrong thing, Whitney. You, you either shouldn't talk to somebody in grief or you need to be like fully prepared and know how to talk to them. Otherwise, you're going to put your foot in your mouth again. And even to your point, there's like a trauma on the opposite side of not being able to handle grief properly for somebody else and like feeling the responsibility of like, I don't want to make this person feel worse. So I have all this weight to handle it well. But I think sometimes I'm recognizing that there's no perfect way to address grief. Would you say the same thing, Victoria? Like, there's no like guidebook of like, okay, when you talk to somebody who's going through grief, this is what you say. And once they say that, then you're going to say this next thing. And this is how you structure a perfect conversation. I don't think that exists. 
Yeah, you can't orchestrate that. But I do think it is really about meeting the person where they're at, not where you're at. You know, if you're genuinely approaching that person in in the space of compassion and love, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how awkward you feel. It has nothing to do. And this is the thing. This is where grievers, they can see it like you reek of it. <laughs> like if you're uncomfortable, you just reek of it, right? And so I think it's learning to understand grief itself why it's so hard, especially if you've not experienced it yourself or if you're denying it for yourself. Because really what I say too is you can only sit with someone in their grief to the capacity that you've sat in your own. And there actually really is a handbook on grief and it's called the Grief Recovery Handbook. And um, this is me trying to go through a program or like learning the method, the grief recovery method. And I don't know if your audience can, they can't see this, but I have sticky notes all the way around it and it's full of highlighting. And yeah, this is my deep desire to help other people and to figure my own self out. Um, But we don't heal on an island. We need community and we need support. And that's what I've learned when I tried to go through this book myself and to apply the knowledge and implement it myself, you can't. You need a guide. You need somebody that can be a heart with ears, a true heart with ears that's not going to analyze, criticize, or judge your experience. There is a handbook for that. Wow. I want you to put it in the show notes. Oh, I will. I know. Well, for the listener to the point of the show notes, when the video is available, you'll be able to find it there too. But in the meantime, there will be a link to that handbook that Victoria just shared. And that's at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in this episode show notes, along with everything that we're going to talk about today. And I'm so glad that you brought that up, Victoria, because I love handbooks. I love guides. So I guess there's something at least to get you, steer you in the right direction. And it kind of feels like, to me, similar to why therapy is helpful. It's like, I think a lot of us feel like we we can just handle it on our own, or I can I can read enough about something that I can figure it out. But a lot of times, especially when it comes to complexities like grief, it is deeply helpful to have somebody who is skilled in guiding. And having a podcast like yours, for example, where you're hearing from people and learning, it's like an education that we don't get in school, but we have to seek it out on our own. And as I mentioned, it's really only been in probably the past year or so that I became even interested in talking to people about grief. I love what you said about how you can only sit with somebody in their grief to the capacity that you sat with it on your own. And part of that leads me to think, wow, like I have had the privilege of not experiencing a lot of grief. But then you said something else earlier about how grief comes in all different forms. Of course, I've experienced grief. I mean, I've lost all my grandparents. That was sad from a death standpoint. I've had the privilege of not losing that many other people to death. Aside from that, 
but I've lost a lot of animals growing up. Like, and that was something else I was thinking about as you were talking, Victoria's. I grew up on a small farm and all sorts of tragic deaths with animals. Like sometimes when I think about it, it like is so hard. Some of the ways that we've lost cats and dogs and various pets that we had, like horrible things, getting hit by cars or an animal, you know, like a wild animal. Those are generally the two ways that it would happen. I grew up with that becoming very commonplace. And I don't know if I've actually ever spent that much time processing it because it was just like, well, this is really sad, but we moved on. And I almost felt like I was numb to it because it was so frequent. And then I became a bit concerned about like, how do I protect this animal? Like, I want them to live their life uh, and enjoy it. But I also like really want to watch their every move because I don't want anything tragic to happen to them because I don't want to have to go through that again. And it's not something that I've given much thought to because I think our society weighs glosses over animal death or doesn't value it. You brought it up too. Like we've seen a lot of animal abuse. We almost see animals a little bit more disposable. Even your point about like, well, we don't see child abuse in the way that we see animal abuse because of privacy. And it's like, wow, that's interesting. Like we don't give another species the respect of privacy, but there is a ton of trauma and losing an animal that you're close to. It's really tough for some people. They feel like it's just as tough as using another human being. Is this something well, that comes up a lot in your work? Actually, I have a client right now that had lost their dog. And what can happen, especially as adults, is if we have trouble connecting with other adults, a pet can be that barrier that you put there in place to protect you from other people, right? You give all the love you have to give to that animal. You don't need another person, right? And animals give unconditional love. They don't criticize, analyze, or judge. They don't talk back. They don't complicate your life. I mean, they can, but you know what I mean? Like, they're emotionally there for you. and. For, I mean, there was a lot of missed opportunity for you as a child in talking about death and the natural processes of life and dying and things like that. And for children, the death of an animal is usually, is often the first death that a child may experience. And what do parents say? Oh, that's all right, Whitney. We'll go to the pet shop next week. We'll get you another dog. We'll just replace the loss. We learn that as children to replace the loss, and we replace the loss as adults. That's actually one of the six myths of grief. And so let's say then that you replace that loss, and you really don't have an outlet to If you said, but mom, I really love that dog. Like, it was my best friend. And for some children, that might be their best friend if they have trouble connecting with other children, right? And so they didn't just lose a dog. They lost their best friend. And so if they can't talk about that and there's no communication, they learn to grieve alone. That's another myth of grief, grieve alone. And so you become an adult 
that grieves alone. I was a child that grieved alone. I would, I would hide to cry, and then I'd fall asleep. I'd fall asleep under the bed crying myself to sleep. I'd fall asleep in the linen closet. I could not express myself openly and cry openly, so I hid to cry. I grieved alone, and I did that well into my adulthood. Up until four years ago, <laughs> I mean, to be real. Yeah, I mean, that's, when I went through grief recovery, this is the book that we use that I facilitate in the program. It's the grief recovery method. And it's in my program, Do Grief Differently, because we really do need to learn how to do grief differently. If I said to you, time heals, what's the rest of it? What's the rest of that phrase? All wounds. All wounds. Everybody knows it. Yep. Everybody knows it. And it's bullshit. Time does nothing but pass. It's the action you take in time that matters. We're also taught to keep busy. If you have parents, let's say you lost a grandparent. Parent lost their parent. And so you don't actually sit down and talk about the loss. Your parent just like goes into overdrive and starts doing all the funeral planning and, and doing all the things. And then they just bury themselves into work. You see that as a child. Well, I don't talk about it. I grieve alone and I keep busy. Just got to keep yourself busy. Just pour yourself into your work and you'll find adults telling other adults that. Oh, I'm really struggling. You know, a griever might say, I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. Just keep, keep busy. Just keep yourself busy so you don't think about it. Dismiss your feelings, <laughs> right? Or we yeah. say, and even as kids too, back to the dog story, well, don't feel bad. Or you're being a bull. You're a child who's being bullied. Don't feel bad. Here, have a cookie. Or hey, you want to go for ice cream? That'll make you feel better. So now as a child, you're learning to self-soothe with food. <laughs> right? You're replacing that loss. And then you're self-soothing with food. And you're grieving alone. So this, we learn, all of us, these are the six myths we all learn them just by the behaviors that are emulated for us because our parents don't know any different because they haven't been taught. And this is why I say the cycles repeat over and over. Another one, be strong. People, other you know, adults will say that to other adults. You're so strong. I can't believe you're so strong. You're holding it together. And, okay, well, because if I was actually the person that was falling apart, you'd say how much I'm falling apart and I can't let that happen. Right? What does it mean to be strong? It's not human if you let yourself cry and feel. Like that's what being human is. So you can be strong or you can be human. So much is coming up as you're talking about this, which is making me feel even more compelled to dig deeper in learning about grief because it's really fascinating where your brain goes as you hear all these examples that you're giving. I mean, beyond the animals, first of all, I also somehow got messages about the insignificance. So I I learned to like hide the grief around animal deaths because I figured people would think, well, why are you so upset about it? You know, I remember like calling into school after I think one of my cats died and I was like so embarrassed to say I wasn't going to go into school that day because my cat had died. 
they're not going to understand that I'm upset about this death. Like one time, at least once. I mean, this is how frequently the animals growing up pass away, but at least once it happened before school. I remember other times it would happen after school. Like I have all these like little memories that even in this moment, I'm like, wow, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I probably should do some processing as an adult around that. Um, Luckily, my parents were really helpful because their sensitivity, their care for animals was demonstrated. And like we had all these rituals and burials of animals, like it wasn't glossed over by them in any major way, but I'm sure in some subtle ways, there was some energy of like, maybe they thought it was best if we just got another cat. I actually, when I was really little, my first cat that I was really bonded to, his name was E.T. after the movie E.T. because I loved that as a kid. And I think we had two cats with the same name. And in this moment, I'm like, did we get a second cat and name it the same name? Did I choose that as a kid? Like, because it was felt like a replacement? Or did my parents give that name as a way of like, oh, maybe she, maybe she's too young to realize as a second cat? Like, I have to ask, I'm going to have a lot of questions for my parents after this episode, Victoria. <laughs> but I really wanted to go back to some of the points you're making how my parents handled the grief of their pets as well. Because, you know, my parents each had animals before I was born. And so I grew up with some animals that were their first children virtually, right? And I remember the significance of them losing those animals. It was, that grief was really evident. But I, I more recently, when their parents passed, it was really interesting. Because for my mom, she had very different reactions to when her mother passed versus her dad based on her relationships. And like there was so much intensity to her grief with her father. And my sister and I didn't really know how to handle it. It was uncomfortable for us to witness our mother grieving because my mother was very outward. Even to this day, I mean, this was like, I think 2007, maybe that my her dad had passed and like it's another one of those myths I'm sure of like oh it, the time healing like no my mom if you bring up her dad like it's still really raw for her after all this time did not like fade away after a year or so it's it lessened in intensity but I wonder if she just learned to hide it more there's probably a lot more grief there than I ever even witnessed and then with my father he had a slightly different reaction to his parents' deaths, but he was close, very close to each of them. I distinctly remember, though, after his dad died, who I was really close to as well. One, actually, right the last day of my grandfather's life, my dad went to see him and I wanted to go with him. And he wouldn't let me. And it's emotional for me because it was like processing my feelings around my grandfather. But I remember that debate of like, do I insist that I go with my dad? And I was very confused to this day. I don't know why he wouldn't let me go. And I think he was so distraught over losing his father that he didn't know how to hold space for me and him at the same time. 
he was so panicked. And I remember him even like pausing. I was like with my dad and I remember him like driving away. And I haven't haven't thought about this in so long, but I remember my dad like hesitating, but I could tell that he didn't want me to go because he just didn't know what to do. He knew that this is like the last time he was going to see his dad and he just like could not handle me being there for it. And it was like interesting. I wanted to be strong for him. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to be strong and I'm going to let my dad go on his own because that's what he wants. And I almost felt like I had to step aside for my dad to grieve. But what was also really interesting is after his dad passed, my dad was completely different. He like swung in the opposite direction where he seemed relieved and happier, like lighter. His whole personality shifted after his dad died. And it was like witnessing the weight that it took off. And I was so unprepared for that. I thought my dad, I was like building up expectations. Like, okay, he's going to come home from seeing his dad the last time. And like, I got to be strong. And like, I was so scared of how my dad was going to react to that, but he reacted in a way I could never have prepared for. I don't know if this is in the guidebook, but like, I had no preparation for my dad's grief. It was unpredictable to me. And it taught me so much about grief because I was like, wow, so much happened that I never saw coming. And I am so curious, like, do you experience, like, are you surprised by grief on a regular basis with your clients? Like, what does this bring up for you when you hear that? Well, first of all, I just want to honor what you shared and thank you for sharing what you did, because that's the thing with grief is it comes up when we least expect it, right? Without knowing really the the relationship. I'll give an example. So let's say here's an interesting aspect that I hadn't really considered or perspective, I should say, that I hadn't considered is with aging parents. I'll just use that as an example. If it is their mind that is going, it's really difficult for the family. But it's not as difficult for them because they just they don't really understand, right? They're not in their right frame of mind to really know what's happening to them, right? So it's not as hard on them as it is on the family. Now, I know that's not always the case because you can have like a slow progression of early onset Alzheimer's and they do have an understanding of what's happening, that cognitive decline. So that's not what I'm speaking to. But whereas if you have a parent that has a terminal illness, that's much harder on the person who's dying, right? Because they know what's happening. They know what's coming. Yes, it's hard for the family to watch, watch that slow decline and that suffering. 
but right, they're the one that's suffering and they know they're suffering and they know what's coming. And so unless we've reconciled our grief and what's happened to us throughout our life, we can have a very different end-of-life experience. And I say that as an end-of-life doula, because I'm a trained end-of-life doula. We can have a beautiful dying experience and that one that includes the family, that there isn't a separation of the truth of what's happening because we tend to medicalize dying. There's this denial on the family's part, like denial of really what's happening. Well, let's just try everything. Let's throw everything at the kitchen sink at it. The doctors in the hospitals, that's what they do because they're, they're there to keep the person alive. But what they often do is prolong the inevitable and they're not honest with the family and with the patient. And I have an episode on that. Chris Kerr, who is an end-of-life researcher, he used to be an ER physician, and now he has dedicated his life, the rest his career now, to end-of-life. And he's a hospice physician, and he's documented end-of-life experiences. It was a Netflix docuseries you might be interested in called Surviving Death. And he's featured in that docuseries. Kind of back to what you had said too with the pets and things, like two of the most minimized losses is pet loss, but also miscarriage. And if you think of how common miscarriage is, like one in five babies are miscarried, that's a lot. It's very common, right? It's become commonplace. And so it's common for dogs and cats and pets to die too, right? And so I think we have as a society become desensitized to that. But interestingly, too, the, the suicide rate of veterinarians is actually very high because they actually get into the profession because they love animals, right? And here they're having to put animals down and they're seeing animals suffer. And so that's one of the things that, you know, my youngest wants to be a veterinarian. And she's the first one that sees an injured bird and she's trying to nurse it. We actually had that happen, a baby pheasant. She found a baby pheasant. And it died. It needed more heat. You know, he needed the heat lamps and all of this stuff that she couldn't. I mean, she was like crushing like wheat and like trying to make it food and stuff or oats. And so she's this natural nurturer of nature. And that's what they, you know, a lot of veterinarians are. And so, I mean, I just wanted to bring that up because we don't think about that stuff, right? You get into the profession to heal and save and help. And then there's another side of it too, right? It's so interesting in this conversation with you because it's so complex and nuanced and it's all around us. It's so interesting how we try to hide something that's inevitable. We try to hide something that's constantly happening. Like right now, I can look out my window where I am in the city and I can see other housing units, right? Like where other people live. And like, if I just think like, wow, that person might be experiencing death in their life today or yesterday, or maybe it's quickly approaching, or what if somebody died across the street? You know, like there, there's all these buildings, it's, the chances of death be happening today to somebody on my block is probably pretty likely. And so it's like, it's there 
it's happening and yet brush it aside all of the time and talk about it in these superficial ways or maybe we reserve the periods of grief to like only certain people or certain things. One of my takeaways today is it's around us in these big ways and small ways and in a way like maybe grief is something that we experience multiple times a day in all different forms. And there's almost something like comforting around that. I don't know, as a coping mechanism, if I am drawn to grief because I want to be prepared and I'm grateful for that experience I shared about my dad and his dad because like, it did teach me that you can't really be that prepared because there's also so many unknowns. Even if you know it's coming, it's the finality of it. Like it's final, like you can't prepare for the finality of it. If you're a caregiver, every day of your life is devoted to caring for that person and all of a sudden they're gone. You're going to feel that for a long time to come because grief is a change in familiar pattern of behavior. And we also define grief as a loss of hopes, dreams and expectations. And anything you wish would have been different, better, or more. And it's reaching for someone one last time, and they're not there. And it could be someone living, too. We can have emotional estrangement from people in our lives. It's like you want that person to be something they're never going to be. That's grief, too. And that is not discussed. That what you just shared is is like all of these examples are just there so frequently and i'm so grateful for the work that you do and the conversations that you have on your podcast because it has raises that awareness for ourselves but also for others like i had said earlier thinking about how we can hold space for other people and give them grace we go around so much of life feeling disconnected and misunderstood. And I have this yearning to connect with people on deeper levels. And I think really in order to do that, I need to understand or I want to understand grief more because that to me is the ultimate way to connect. And that brings me back to like the beginning of this conversation where I said like, I think maybe I'm drawn to talking about grief because it feels like the ultimate form of vulnerability. And vulnerability... Mm to me, leads to connection. Yeah, very much so. But, you know, it's, I think so many of us are walking around with our armor up. There's very few people that feel, feel safe to talk to that stuff about, right? Because out of fear of being criticized, analyzed, or judged. And so it's, how do you open that window? Might be just asking a simple question or maybe a direct question. You know, it's like with with someone who there's it's such a taboo if someone who is dealing with depression to ask them, are you having thoughts of harming yourself or someone else? Oh, I would never ask somebody that, right? Like most people would never ask somebody that who is feeling depressed. Are you having suicidal thoughts? Are you thinking about harming yourself or someone? else because are you 
willing to handle the answer. You don't want the answer. You really don't want the answer because if it is yes, what are you going to do? So I would never ask that question. Most people would say, right? I've had to ask a loved one that. It's not easy. But it opens the window. It opens the door to conversation. And sometimes people just need someone to open the door for them. So they feel safe to share. I certainly do. I would want that. And it, it, you're right, it, it's not easy, but I also feel like I would rather try and know that I gave it my best shot versus like not asking somebody something that could potentially shift things. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to prevent anything. Just because somebody talks about There's, their struggles doesn't mean that they're going to change their actions. Do you think? Here's a couple tips. You know, because here's the thing. Personal space is personal space. So if you see someone struggling with something, say, can I give you a hug? Okay. So you go in to hug them. Here's a tip. Do not be the first person to release the hug. Let the other person, let the person you're hugging release the hug. Because you're deciding for them when you're done with the hug. And that's completely contradictory to why you wanted to give them a hug in the first place, right? They might start crying. They might start like just emotionally vomiting. Let that be okay. Don't hand them a tissue and say, here, stop your crying. Because that's really kind of what you're saying. You know, it's like, if you're crying and when you got upset and you got sad, right? If I'd have handed you a tissue, you would have used it and you would have stopped crying. But what that's doing is it's stopping the emotion. Let them get their own tissue. Let them use their sleeve. Let them make a mess of their face, whatever. Don't hand them the tissue. These are things that we learn in grief recovery. It's how to handle those situations, but honoring the person where they're at. I can see why you have so many bookmarks in that book. <laughs> right? <laughs> I would too. I, I want to get a copy of that. And Do you feel like that book is equally helpful even if you're not looking to get into the grief recovery profession? But is it centered for people that like are, or me who are just curious and want to be better at understanding grief? Absolutely. It is for grievers. It, it is for grievers really to understand and anyone who wants, it's the action program for moving beyond death, divorce, and other losses, including health, career, and faith. Talks about how grief recovery addresses trauma and PTSD. Actually, John James was the co-author, and he founded the Grief Recovery Institute. He was a Vietnam veteran, and he created a program that he wished would have been there for him because after he was, a, he was a Vietnam veteran, but he also, he and his wife had lost a child, an infant child. And then their marriage fell apart and he ended up getting a divorce as a result. And so he was a griever and he wasn't finding the resources for him, especially as a man, right? Like there's that other aspect of like men don't need to talk about their feelings. And there's that whole, we can, that's a whole nother topic that it's weak for men to talk about their feelings. And I think that's where 
can get into the whole masculine versus feminine and all of that, but, and the energy, which I'm an energy worker too. And so there's a whole other topic there. But yeah, it's very much for anyone who wants to understand grief in a way that is not shared anywhere else. The first 10 episodes of my podcast, Grieving Voices, is actually a foundation of kind of the cliffs notes, I guess, if you will, of the book. So if you, you know, and the book is on Audible as well, but if you don't, not a much of a reader or don't want to listen to an audiobook, the first 10 episodes is a great foundation of education for grief too. That's fantastic. I'm so grateful for your show. I can't wait to dive into it. I have an upcoming road trip as we talked about <laughs> before we started recording. And that's when I just will binge listen to audiobooks and podcasts. And I just think it's such a gift to the world that you give uh, to talk about this, to help people better understand and approach it. I love the energy elements of your work just feels so healing. In fact, just speaking with you over this time, I just, I feel open and tender, but in like a really lovely way. You know, you brought up memories and thoughts and gave me opportunities to process things. And I imagine that you have done that for the listener as well. So thank you for spending the time with me and with the listener. And and also thank you for the work that you do for your community. It's so needed and much appreciated. Thank you. It's, you know, I, you almost wish you didn't have to go through my own hell to get here, but it's built me. It's made me who I am. And, you know, I think grief really, I denied this aspect of me, like this healer in me for many years, uh, up until I went through grief recovery, to be honest. I tried all sorts of other things. I had a photography business and all sorts of things. But in a lot of grief experiences throughout my life, you know, it wasn't just my childhood. And so, but yeah, it just took me going through and processing my grief to really get back to really what delights me. What delighted me as a child? What was I into? What was, what lit me up? Like, what did, what did I find myself doing? And I actually just read the back of some of the pictures when I graduated high school. You know, one of the things to do back then was to sign the back of the picture of who you gave it to. And one of my friends had written, I love that you care so damn much and that you were like a second mom to me. I was telling me right from wrong. And she was the kid that had been going through a challenging time, but she was the one that was drinking at a young age. And she was the one going down a different path than me. And so I was trying to like steer her away. You know, don't go that way. Come my way, you know? Yeah. And I just, and then there was another picture too, where it's like, I don't know about you. You're pretty strange, (laughs) you know, but that's where that feeling of not, belonging, right? Like didn't know where I belonged. But I feel like I just I found my way back to myself. And I think that's what really processing my grief has helped me do. Yes, I love that too. And being able to come back to yourself, I feel like a lot of people want to do that and just don't know how. So knowing that there are resources and people like you who are modeling that is just so beautiful. 
And again, thank you so much for the listener. I'm going to link to Victoria's wonderful website and podcasts and social media and all of the information that you could want about her at wellevator.com. That's where the show notes are. As I mentioned, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And I hope that you check it out and connect with her. I will link to the book that she mentioned, which as soon as we stop recording, I'm going to go queue up at my digital library. So because <laughs> I'm so excited to read that. I'm very curious to see. I bet you I will have a lot of bookmarks on that too and highlights. <laughs> and I look forward to hearing how you talk about it on your show as well, Victoria. So I wish you all the very best with with the work that you do and really hope that the listener connects with you after this. Yes. Let's talk about grief like we talk about the weather. Ooh, I love that. Yes. That's in the intro of my podcast. Oh, Let's talk about so grief good. like we talk about the weather. Just like at the parties. Yeah. Now, maybe next party I go to, they're <laughs> going to be like, what is going on? Why is she asking me about my grief? Somebody will say, oh, it's a nice day out. I'm like, sure it is. But can we talk about grief instead? <laughs> I, yeah, I wonder that. what would happen if I would just say to somebody... I wonder if what would happen if I said to somebody, so has anyone died in your life lately? Like, <laughs> oh, I mean, I wow. I mean, right? I can lighten the situation, but people would be like stunned. I, I bet know. you people would be stunned. Like, did you just say that? Like that could go either way. Right. Like, did you just say that? Or did you just say that? <laughs> I know. And like, could we sit there in the discomfort of that reaction and just see where it goes? Because it could certainly take us it could go either way, but I guess I think that if somebody cannot handle a question like that, then who knows if our connection would be there versus somebody I feel like who would lean into that question would create the deep connection that I'm really yearning for anyways. So not sure I would feel Maybe comfortable asking question. that, but yeah, what's your better <laughs> question? <laughs> Maybe a better question would be, so are you self-soothing with booze right, right now? Yeah. Actually, another person that was on the show recently, James Swanwick, came on and talked about alcohol. And we talked about like parties and self-soothing. And that episode really got to me. It, it completely shifted my relationship with alcohol, which has always been very minimal. But it opened my eyes to the self-soothing side in a new light. And I've barely had anything to drink since because I've realized like, that's actually getting in the way of the connection that I yearn for with myself and with others. So that's a whole nother discussion. But Victoria, I could go on and on with you today. We'll pause for now. And I'm looking forward. I guess the part two is just to go over to your podcast and to dive into everything that you're doing there. So I'm very grateful that anyone else who's enjoyed this conversation has somewhere else to go right now. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about grief because I could talk about it all the live long day. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.